So I'm a pastor, right? So that means, you know, many of you don't know this, that means that I get to hear more confessions than the Brooklyn DA, okay? I hear confections of all kinds. I know the kind of shame that people walk around with on a daily basis. I mean, I've literally had moms come to me and tell me uh, that uh, how shamed they feel when they see their children in active addiction because they lit up the first joint with that kid and the shame and the guilt that they feel. I, I know the shame that others have confessed to me. Fathers who decided to leave their family to chase a skirt. I know, I'm familiar with the shame that people feel when they've gambled away their 401k and now their family is in dire, dire situation. I know the shame that others feel as they struggle with their sexual identity and wrestle with what it means to follow Christ. Shame is something that is an equal opportunity uh, principle or emotion. It attacks those of us who are incredibly successful and those of us who've never had a success in our lives. It attacks those of us who are unbelievably affluent and those of us who are poor as dirt. It attacks those of us who are educated to the max and those of us who never graduated from the sixth grade. It attacks us all. Shame affects us all. You all, we all have moments of shame. I have mine. Don't you have yours? I remember I was about 14 years old. And uh, I, I was with a friend, and he had stolen a Monte Carlo SS. Anybody remember an Monte Carlo SS? They called it SS because it was the super, super, wow, a bunch of Puerto Ricans in here like, oh, man, what? Still driving in them. Yeah, I know, I know. So, um... So it was an SS, it's a super sport, eight cylinder. This is like a Corvette speed car. This is like a really fast car. And so he had stolen one. I was driving in it. I had told him, hey, let me drive. And he was like, yeah, sure. And I, I forgot to tell him that I had never driven before in my life. <laughs> and of course, the way you're supposed to learn how to drive is on an, in an SS. And so, um, so I'm driving the car, and it's sort of an abandoned neighborhood, mostly abandoned neighborhood, and we're just driving around. I look down to change the station on the radio, and he goes, the next thing I hear is, Edwin, watch out. And it's, I was so shocked, I, lift up my, I lifted up my foot from the gas and then slammed it on the gas. This thing snapped our neck back, shot forward, and slammed into a van. I, I didn't stay to find out what had happened to those people. See, we're talking about shame. Things that you've done that you wish you'd never done. Regrets that you have that you wish you could take back. Words that you say. You're thinking about the thing that I'm ashamed about. What about, do, do you remember yours? Do you struggle with that? I struggle with that. I don't know if I broke an arm or ended a life. I don't know. And it is to this that Christ will speak to our souls. We find that shame's remedy is not what the world suggests. We find that shame's remedy is found in a Savior who will take shame upon himself. 
even gross sins like mine. But we don't want that. We don't want the Savior's love. We don't want him to take our shame. We feel like we need to handle it ourselves. And so how do we handle shame? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is, one way that the world handles shame is excuse making. We say things like, well, you know, you know what? You just, you just didn't know any better. You, 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 you make excuses. You didn't know any better. Hey, hey, they deserved what you did to them. After what they did to you, they deserved what you did to them. It's excuse making. That's one way we deal with shame. Another way we deal with shame is that we try to smother it. We smother shame with positive affirmation. You know what I'm saying, right? We, we, we look in a mirror, and, and I'm not being facetious here. No, we just look in a mirror, or we say words that are positive. We say things like, um, look in a mirror and say, you are a beautiful person. You are an intelligent person. You are, and we say these things, not as they are true because Christ made us, but we say these things as if to smother the shame that we feel. I can tell you that there are some things that I can tell, I can, I can look in the mirror and tell myself, you're a good person. And yet I got moments like the ones that I just explained to you that bring evidence into my life to the contrary. I am not a good person. I could never convince myself that I was. And so the smothering our shame with positive affirmation, the excuse making for our shame doesn't help, and neither does guilt covering. You know what I mean by guilt covering, right? It's, it's when we refuse to bring it up. It's when we act like it doesn't exist. It's like, it's when we say, you know what, I'm just not even going to think about it. And if we see a person that reminds us of it, we get it quickly out of our minds. If we're in a conversation, we change the conversation. If the direction is going in that direction, we just suppress the emotions. There is a way of dealing with shame that makes us sick, and it's these three ways that we've just talked about. But Jesus knows whether you are a Christian or a Muslim, whether you're a Buddhist or an atheist, Jesus knows that everyone on earth will experience shame, experience regret. There was, listen, there's only one guy, right, who said that he didn't uh, experience shame, and most of us think he was lying, right? Frank Sinatra, remember the song? He said, I did it my way, mistakes, I made a few, but then again, too few to mention. Nah, Frankie, nah, sounds like a cool song, but you drank an awful lot for a reason. That's another way to deal with shame. That's another way to deal with shame, where we, again, we stuff our shame yeah, and I guess if you drink a couple of quarts a night, then you can sing that stuff. But if you're actually going to be sober-minded, you're going to have to deal with shame in a real way. So how do we do it? Well, God knows we're going to deal with it. So he said, I want to remind you of something. Last week, we started a series. It's called Hungry. And the reason that we started this series is because we wanted to awaken in you an appetite for Jesus. Because here's what we know. In Recovery House of Worship, we know this that what you, what you feed, you develop an appetite for. Isn't that true? Like, watch this. I've never, like yesterday, my wife made this incredible, like, stew, right? And after I was done with it, it wasn't like, I'll never eat again. 
It was like, man, I can't wait to have that again. Why? Because the more you eat, the greater your appetite. If you've ever struggled with addiction, I don't even need to tell you this point. This is so academic. You don't have to be Christian to believe this. If you, right, how, how did addiction start for you, right? What did you do? You went from never drinking anything to drinking something to smoking something to snorting something to shooting something up. You went. It was a, it was a timed process. And interestingly enough, the more you had, the more you needed. Because that which we feed creates a greater appetite in us. This is true in all areas of life. Just ask the sneaker uh, addicts in the room. (laughs) Ask them, how many shoes do you have? And they'll tell you, some of the sneaker addicts will tell you 10 and 20 and 30 and God forbid, 100 pairs of sneakers. And then of course, the follow-up question is very obvious. Exactly how many feet do you have? (laughs) To which they say, too, do you think that there's a disparity here? But this is the thing, the more you open your appetite, the more you feed on something, the more you open your appetite. That's why we started this series, because we wanted you to feed on Christ, so that your hunger would be. And so last week we started it, I think it was a great start to the series, you should check it out. Um, Pretty soon we're going to have video up again uh, from the last five or six weeks, including this one probably coming up within the next week or so, and so you'll be able to see those as well. But God gives us reason to deal with our shame. And so we go, and this is where we find ourselves. It's David in his psalm, reminding us of God's goodness, reminding us that we should not forget God's benefits, that when we do forget God's benefits, we don't want to pray, we don't want to serve, we don't want to read our Bible, we don't want to, so we got to remember who God is. And so in the first two verses, we started that out last week in the first five verses, but we emphasized the first two verses. Listen to me. This week, we're going to remember that God addresses our shame. We're going to learn this week that shame is removed from us so that God's spirit can reign in us. Because we don't want your shame to reign in your life and rule. We don't want shame to be the dictator of your soul. Shame is removed from us so that God's spirit can reign in us. We're going to read from Psalm 103, pick up right where we left off. It's in verse 6. If you can, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? On the count of three, let's read this together. One, two, three. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, thank God, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is God's word. Please have a seat. So let's look at how God removes our shame. 
And the first thing he addresses, and I think this is important to point out, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Listen to me. If you're poor, God hasn't forgotten you. If you're powerless, God has not forgotten you. There's a special shame with that. I remember it wasn't until my late 30s. This is interesting because I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. It was very poor. And I remember up until my late 30s, whenever I went into a place like Macy's, I would always zip up the pockets on my coat. Has anybody ever done this? I, I would zip up the pockets in my coat as if to say, tell the cameras that are looking at me, I have no intention of stealing anything. It was, it was a shame that kind of covered over me. My mother was a frequent uh, person on the line for cheese. Everybody remember the cheese line, the big brick of cheese that you used to get? Those things were awesome. Man, you could build a house with that cheese. You could, those things were awesome. But it, it, was always, it was always filled with shame. I, I, I remember my, my friends, and it was looking back, it was crazy that I felt like this because we were all in the same boat. It's not like they lived in Beverly Hills and I lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Yo, we all live here because we're all poor as dirt. It's like nobody, you know. And so like they, when my friends would make fun of uh, welfare families, I thought I was the only one. I mean, just shame covered over me. And you could walk with that as an identity when you're poor. Like you're nothing. Like you have no value. Listen to me. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. I'm telling you, there's oppression that goes on today. There's a fear that many of us feel. I know some, even with the elections, can feel um, at risk for being abused. And, and listen to me. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. The whole world might have forgotten about you. The whole world might not think you're anything. God is advocating for you, and there's nothing like it. You have a just God who advocates for the powerless, for the weak, for the foreigner, for the alien. God advocates for you. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now, David is setting something up here. He he's wants to remind, remind them of something. He wants to bring something to their memory. So he starts by saying, he made known his ways to Moses. He's bringing back the exodus, their past. He's bringing back their history so that they can remember that God is faithful, that he is able, and that he's powerful to take away our shame and our guilt. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And then he quotes Moses, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now look up at me. This is really, really pow powerful. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. When you feel shame coming on, you must remember that in Christ, this is your, this is, you have a God who's slow. He's not trying, listen, many of us think of God as a person with a sledgehammer just waiting to slam us once we go off in the wrong direction. That is not the picture of God that God wants for you to see. 
David says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. But he is not picking that up from the air. He's going back into their history. This is a, a, a sort of a, a quote from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we have the people of God who have completely, in, in 33, God was, God was about ready to just like, that's it. You know, I don't know if you ever had a parent who was like, that's it, and started grabbing for their belt buckle, right? God was like, that's it. I'm about to put it on all of y'all. I've had enough of this. And so God was like reaching for his belt. And, and Moses begged for the people of Israel to be spared. He's begged for the people of Israel to be spared. And God, of course, was uh, willing to spare both Moses and the people. And in 34, we see this, that Moses goes, you know, show me your glory. And so God passes in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord. This is God's name. In the, in the verse before this, God said that he showed Moses his name. And his name is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you see where David pick, picked it up? He's going back to God's name to remind the people of what they need to know about God removing shame. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But this is the part that's wild. In verse 9, in verse 9 of Psalm 103, he says this, David does. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Here's the problem. If you go to verse 7 in Exodus, Moses says the opposite. It's wild. Moses says the exact opposite. What are we to do with that? Now, if you don't think that the Bible is scripture, then you just throw it away. You go, oh, you know what? God is full of contradictions. The Bible's full of contradictions. It was written by man. But if you're thoughtful and you take a moment, this can have a profound effect on how you view God. All of us love this idea of a forgiving God, of a God who takes our shame away. Nobody ever got mad at God and said, you know what, God? You just try to forgive too much of my sin. You just try to take too much of my shame. I don't like that. I would like to keep a little shame for myself. No one does that. We all love that. But when it comes to God judging and punishing, we all kind of shriek from that. We say, no, 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 that can't be. See, David knows what Moses said. He's quoting Moses. But he's trying to teach us something, and it's powerful. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, Moses says this. Remember, he's following that gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Verse 7, Moses says, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let's read this together. From yet, on the count of three, one, two, three. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. What do we do with that? Here's what we do. We're, listen, we're serious Bible people. And we take it seriously. God is trying to teach you something. If you want to be flippant and you want to be surface, then you just bow out and say, Bible's full of contradictions, or you don't bother with it, or you ignore it and just go, oh, that was Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. Don't ever say that. 
The Bible is the Bible. Don't you ever, ever do that. You undermine the authority of the Bible when you do that. Let's wrestle with this. Let's be real Jesus followers. So he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents and the third and fourth generation. First of all, I want to point out how true this is. Have you ever seen uh, somebody who had uh, alcohol um, addiction in their family? And then go, hey, did your father have an alcohol? Oh, yeah. And then, what, did your grandfather also? It's like, you could see third, fourth, sometimes ten generations back of alcoholic fathers. You see this all over the place. Many times. So you don't need, you don't need the Bible to tell you that your kids will pay for the, the sins that you do. You don't need that, right? Like, you know, you, you find yourself lying around your kids, your kids will think it's okay to lie. You find yourself, right, smokers, right? You, you almost inherit that, right? You're, you're, you're like infinitely more likely to start smoking cigarettes if your parents smoke cigarettes. We all know that this third and fourth generation thing, it happens naturally. So then who's right? Is Moses right? That God punishes everybody for every sin? Or is David right? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Well, if you just think that Moses wrote Exodus, and you just think that David wrote Psalms, or this Psalm, then you have to choose between the two. Moses is wrong, David's right. Moses is right, David's wrong. But because we know that there's another author behind the scenes, that the Spirit of God, we believe as Christians, was guiding, directing, and leading. That's why we say the scriptures are inspired in a special way. Then I think the Spirit was writing something that he wanted us to know. How could God both punish and not punish sin? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that God would not be loving if he was not just. Listen to me. You should write that down. God could not be loving if he was not just. God is loving, but he's also a judge. And that's something that we mustn't forget in our understanding of who God is. This is very, very important for us because if we get this, we go, listen, it would not be loving for me not to get angry at someone who's trying to attack my children. Would you agree that if someone tried to attack my children, that it would be the most, the most loving response I could, be, I could have is a rage uh, that, that goes to violence if someone's trying to attack my children? Absolutely. That's the most loving thing I could do. Could you imagine if God just winked at sin? Could you imagine, oh, God is love. You don't know love if you don't know anger. You simply don't. Could you imagine this? Uh, someone breaks into my house, or maybe they break into your house, and, and they rape one of my children. And then we go to court. It's devastating. I have, I have such a pained heart over this. Could you imagine if, if the judge came and said, are you sorry that you did this? And the guy goes, man, I'm so sorry that I did this. He goes, you know what? I'm a loving judge. You're, 
You're sorry? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, Papi, go on your way. Could you imagine? That judge would not be neither loving nor just. He would be neither. But if you are going to have a loving God, you must have a God who is also just. A God who will crush and punish sin. Moses does not want us to forget that. And yet if you're to approach God at all, otherwise we'd all be crushed. If you were to approach God at all, David, David knew this and experienced this. David had um, raped and murdered. He had saw Bathsheba. He saw he had all the power in the world. So when, she, when he told her to come over to his house, she had nothing. She had no other alternative but to go there and do what he wanted. He raped Bathsheba. It was one of his best friend's wives. Grimy. Then he goes and finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant. You know what he does? He tries to cover it up. He calls his best friend who's on the battlefield fighting for his king, David. He draws him back and he gets him all liquored up. And this guy drunk was ten times the man that David was. He wouldn't even go home. He says, if my boys are out there on the field, how am I going to enjoy the pleasures of marriage? And David got him drunk and he still wouldn't dishonor his boys. David tried to get him drunk again, and he still wouldn't do it. David sends him back literally with his death warrant in his hand, telling the commander to kill Absalom, um, Absalom, to kill uh, Bathsheba's uh, husband, Uriah. So he goes off. David calls the hit on him. He gets murdered. And then, and then, and then Nathan confronts him o over a year later. Nathan confronts him and he says, you are a wicked, evil man. In one of the most powerful sermons you'll ever hear, you should look it up. He confronts him and David says this, I am undone. I'm a wicked guy. You can hear his confession in Psalm 51. He does this entire confession about how wicked he is and how good that God is. Nathan then comes back and says, don't worry, God forgives you. Everybody, could you, could you imagine being Uriah's dad? Yeah? Yeah? You forgive this guy? What about, what about Bathsheba's mom? Yeah? You're going to forgive this guy? The whole universe cries out. That is unjust. That cannot be. So how is it that God, God must not be loving if he does not apply justice? And God is not just. If he doesn't love, what do we do with that? Exodus and Psalms. Because the Spirit is superintending over the Scriptures, it turns out they were both right. You see, in Jesus, the punishment and the wrath that you deserve for every sin you've ever committed was fallen on Christ. God treated sin the way it deserved with the death penalty. God treated sin with great wrath and so that God himself could experience the wrath of God's judgment and that you could experience the love. That's why no sin goes unpunished. 
Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that you and I deserve. On the cross, Jesus experiences the kind of consequences that you and I deserve. Jesus experiences it on the cross. And on the cross, you and I receive what we do not deserve. We we receive the mercy and the love of Christ. This is why Jesus is so precious to us. Not because, listen, if you don't understand these two verses, Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, I will not let one sin go unpunished. And Psalm 103, verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Then you'll walk around with an impotent gospel. You'll walk around and go, oh yeah, God forgives me, yeah, God forgives me, God forgives me. That's why sinning is no big deal for you. It's like, yeah, God forgives me, God forgives me. So what? I'm going to sleep with this guy. So what? I'm going to sleep with this girl. Who cares? I'm going to use. God will forgive me. Yeah, I'm going to lie. Yeah, I'm going to steal from my company. Don't worry. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. It has no power because there's been no death. It has no power because there's been no punishment. It has no power because the sin that you have so flagrantly committed has not been judged sinful, and punished. It has no power. But because Christ is on the cross, God judges sin, and he loves sinners like you and me. David goes on to say as much. Listen to what he says. For as high as the heavens, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Can you imagine that? Can you, listen, 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 listen. Listen, all of you mothers who were bad mothers left your children um, in their diaper for two days while you went out and used and prostituted your bodies. Let me tell you something. Jesus died for that sin, so you don't have to. All of you, who abandoned your families and did despicable things, leaving them in despair. Jesus died for that sin, so you don't have to. Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to carry the weight and the penalty of your sin. I know you don't get that, because if you did get that, you'd be jumping up and down right now. You'd be freaking out. You'd be going, oh my goodness, I'm really, really freed. He saved me. He he relieved me. From my sin. Could you imagine? Could you imagine walking in that? What would happen? What would happen when Satan accuses you and tries to shame you if you're in Christ? Here's what would happen. If Satan reminds me of my van experience, I can, here's what will happen. You'll become more humble. You know why you'll become more humble? You won't have to defend yourself. We spend, because we're so full of shame, we spend all of our arguments defending ourselves. But when we know we're guilty, there's nothing to defend. And we know that someone has paid for our sins, there's no way. Listen, so when my wife comes up to me and says, you are not being a good husband, you are not being a good parent, I can weep with her and agree. And then ask God's grace to help me be better both. I can stop fighting what God wants to awaken in my soul and I can surrender to what God has for me. When 
when someone says, you know, you were, oh, look at your, you know, when Satan comes up to you and says, look at your son after his addiction and all he's doing. Oh, you know the reasons why he's acting this way. It was because you did. You can go, wait, 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 wait. Satan, it was worse than that. And I've gone to God so he might have mercy on my son because he's given mercy to my soul. When I think about some of the things that I did in that car illustration that I gave you, I can go, oh God, have mercy on that family. Help me to receive Christ's mercy and walk in the forgiveness and pray for them. Listen to me. Your shame is removed because on Christ it was bestowed. And now you can be free. Listen, in this room there are nothing but bad parents, nothing but bad children. Nothing. Listen, in this room we have bigots and racists, we have misogynists. In this room, listen, get used to understanding that your sin doesn't define you because Christ has taken your sin on the cross so you don't have to defend yourself. Don't you see? Our shame is removed from us so that God's spirit can reign in us. David says it like this again, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression. Do you see the illustration? As high as the heavens are from the earth. How far is the heavens from the earth? Like when you get to Mars, do you still have more heavens to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get out of the uh, Milky Way galaxy, do you still have more heavens to go? That's pretty far, isn't it? How far is the heavens from the earth? Let me ask you this. How far is the east from the west? How far is it? When you get to Kalamazoo, do you still have more to go? When you, go, when you get to China, do you still have more to go? Absolutely. Listen to me. It's as far as east is from the west. I wonder if you could see it. Listen. As far as a beam going from the earth to the heavens and a wooden beam going from east to west. That's how far. He nailed it to a cross. That's how great God's love is for you. No sin will go unpunished. I'm going to punish you in Christ. You're going to pay for your sins. Say it with me. In Christ. You're going to get what you deserve. In Christ. So that God, Christ can give you what you don't deserve. And Christ can give you what you don't merit. So you're here. And you had 13 years clean, and you relapsed. Come here. Come here. His mercy and his forgiveness extends to you. You stole everything from your family. You robbed them of everything. You come here. Come to Christ. As far as the beam who hits the earth, directing itself to a heavens, as far as a beam that would go from the east to the west, you have been forgiven. Receive Christ. Receive the forgiveness that he gives. It's for you. Listen to me. 
your sin is no match for God's grace. No match. His grace is greater. Are you too good for that? Now, if you walk around with that, here's what will happen. You'll become more humble. This week, this week, as you walk around and as the, the um, musicians come up, as you walk around, here's what's going to happen. Shame, you're going to be reminded about shame. You're going to be reminded about your guilt. You're going to be reminded about it. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, that's true. That is true. And then as you feel the pain of the shame, you're going to ask Jesus this question. Jesus, is this the pain that you felt on the cross for the sin that I committed? And Jesus is going to go, ah, at least that. I mean, much, much, much more. Much more. And you're going to go, God, how great are you to know that I am this guilty and yet bestow your forgiveness. How great you are. And then I just want you to worship him. God, you're so great. So that when shame comes into your life, it becomes an impotence for worship. When you do something and someone confronts you on your sin, this week what I want you to do is I want you to not defend your, yourself. You go, you know, I'm not sure I see it, but could you help me understand it? Because I want to walk in the freedom of Christ. So you could start walking on solutions rather than working on shame. It's for you. Now, there's a bunch of you here. And the fact is, is you got you to gotta carry your own shame. You don't want anything to do with Jesus. What can I tell you? Do the best you can. Here, here's, here's some suggestions. Drink a lot. Here's some other suggestions. Stuff them. Stuff your shame. Try not to think about it. That'll work. Here's another one. Here's another one. Make excuses for the things that you feel ashamed about. That'll do it. Or, or here's another one. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and experience the forgiveness that he gives. Come to Christ and experience the shame that he removes. Come to Christ and remember that he loved you to death. Don't forget it.